Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, and welcome to New Books in Performing Arts, a podcast from the New Books Network. My name is Andy Boyd, and I'm talking today with Nate Chenen, author of the book Playing Changes, Jazz for the New Century. Nate, thanks so much for being on the program. Thank you so much for having me. Could you tell us a bit about your history with jazz and how you became a jazz critic? Sure. You know, I... I mean, I guess those are two separate but related questions. Um, in terms of my history with the music, I came up in a musical family uh, in Honolulu. Both of my parents were singers and entertainers. And they both, um, although they weren't jazz artists, they both came up at a time when when jazz was really uh, you know, a, a major part of popular culture. And so I was surrounded by musicians and um, the, the sort of life of um, the entertainment industry. Um, and so jazz kind of naturally hit my radar as a result of that. Um, but, you know, becoming a critic is another story. Um, my parents were certainly more on the performer end of the spectrum. And, um, I for quite some time thought I might become a jazz drummer, uh, and was, was quite serious about it. Uh, but I went to college, uh, in Philadelphia and, um, fell into the the Philadelphia jazz scene as a player, but at the same time I was an English major who, you know, had always loved to write. And um, long story short, through an internship uh, that I fortuitously got at the Philadelphia City Paper, um, I kind of put two and two together and realized, oh, you know, I love to write. I have a certain you know amount of critical faculty, um, and I know the history of the music. Um, why don't I put all of this together and and begin to write about the music, um, both, you know, in in a sort of reporting way and as a as a critical observer? So that's kind of how it all came together. Uh, in the, I guess now it it was in 1996. So uh, you know, I'm terrible at math. What, what is that like? 20, 25, 20, 25 years ago. Twenty five yeah. years ago. Yeah. Did you conceive of this book, Playing Changes, as kind of filling a gap in the existing literature? I did. Um, I, I definitely had that feeling um, from the beginning, really, you know, from the very beginning of the, the genesis of this project. It, it partly arose out of a feeling that there was a gap in the literature. You know, um, there are so many great books about jazz, and most of them... Um, take the measure of the 20th century and, and, you know, um, articulate a kind of lifespan for the music. Um, and so if you, if you suggest that jazz is born around the beginning of the 20th century and reaches, you know, maturity around mid century, you know, well then you're, you're effectively buying into the idea that it, that it begins to wane and, and peter out towards the end of the 20th century. And in my experience as a critic, as a listener, um, and as a fan of this music, um, that really wasn't the case at all. In fact, 
I felt like there was so much that had happened around the turn of the century and, and you know, in the first decade or so of the 21st that um, there was just all this evidence pointing toward the idea that uh, not only is this not a moribund life form or, or something that is, um, you know, on the wane, but actually jazz is in extraordinarily good health. And there, and there are all these reasons to believe that it's in the midst of a, a kind of creative, um, I don't know, I don't know if you'd say renaissance, but uh, just a, a really, really productive and creative period. Yeah, I'm I'm 29 and I started listening to jazz, you know, somewhat seriously in college, so about 10 years ago. And I always sort of wondered, is my perception that now is a really good time for jazz just because this is when the time, this is the time I started listening <clears throat> to jazz or right. is there some real, you know, substance to that? I mean, that's a perfectly valid, you know, I think recency bias and and sort of personal experience bias is, um, that's totally understandable. You know, what's funny though, is I grew up at a time when the culture around the music was so oriented towards uh, preservation and conservation that for a good part of my early experience, I felt like I had missed out on all mm-hmm. of the really good stuff. Um, you know, it's a really uh, pervasive feeling that, uh, especially at that time, it was hard to shake, you know, because so much of the discourse and, and marketing around the music was geared towards celebrating the glories that had come and gone, you know. Um, and so to be, you know, I, I was turning on to the music in the 1980s and 90s. And, and at that time, you know, yeah, there was stuff to be excited about, but in terms of what I had access to, um, you know, I just felt like, oh, if only I had been around in the 40s or in the 50s or in the 60s, you know. Um, and so it's been nice, actually, to see a generational shift along those lines. Um, when I meet uh, listeners your age or, or even younger, they they often tend to feel excited about what has happened on their watch, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's, that's a cool shift. Like that, that to me speaks of, um, a kind of success in terms of the way this music is being presented, um, out in the world. Yeah. One of the ways that jazz history is often told is as these sort of struggles between rival factions with different ideas about what the shape of jazz should be. And, and there was a big one kind of in the seventies and eighties where there were, you know, traditionalists or preservationists or whatever, whatever term you want to use, you know, people like Wynton Marsalis and then more experimental musicians like the people clustered around the AACM. Um, do you think enough time has passed from that controversy to say basically who won? I will, um, I will demur on the, on the notion that there was a winner. Um, sure. I really don't think there was. Um, I think that, that we are the victors in the sense that um, those, those scrabbling tensions now seem so like weirdly, uh, quaint and outmoded, you know, um, I look and they at were very personal at the time, like oh, some sure. of the people on each yeah. side were really vicious. <laughs> there was deep investment in this idea, you know, the, the, the schism that was, um, certainly amplified by the media at the time, but, but, you know, if you were on the scene, you, you had a sense that this was real, that this was actually happening at ground level. And so one of the things that, that I am most pleased about when I look at the, at the culture of this music 
is that we've we've not only reached a kind of detente in the in the so-called jazz wars, but we've completely moved past that whole um, diametric framework. You know, I look at the success of a musician like trumpeter Ambrose Akinmusiri, who uh, has just you know not really had a false step in his career. Um, you know, each one of his albums is essential. And this is a musician who won the prestigious Thelonious Monk uh, International Jazz Competition, um, you know, really the sort of ultimate proving ground for proficiency within the tradition. Um, he's someone who can hang with with anybody. Um, and he's also, you know, he's, he's drawing from hip hop and other forms of music. Um, he's incorporating string quartets. He is paying homage to heroes like Roscoe Mitchell from the Art Ensemble of Chicago and the AACM. Um, that's the kind of musician who really shows, you know, how stupid the idea of, of all of these camps is, you know? Um, and, I, and I think he's indicative of this generation of players who th- they were able to sort of look at those squabbles and say, like, w- what's the point of that? Like, why would I not pull the stuff that most interests me from, from everywhere, you know, from both sides of this fence and, and from that fence and everywhere else. Uh, and so that to me is, is a really, really happy outcome. And it's something that, um, is quite different, uh, in this day and age than it was, you know, let's say in the, in the nineties or even, you know, in the very early two thousands. Yeah, that that also reminds me of Cecil McLaurin Salvant. I feel like she's another singer who is in some ways very traditional, and then in some ways, I mean, she doesn't really sound like anybody else except for sounding a little bit like Abby Lincoln, you know? Yeah, C- Cecile is. Um, sh- I mean, she is a genius. Let's let's just say that right up front. Um, I I'm very proud of the fact that she is the very first musician named in the book, um, in the foreword, um, because. Although you know her career was was in quite a different place when I when I was writing this book several years ago, it was already clear that she was um, just hugely important. And you know, when you say that she is kind of a traditionalist, I think I think of Cecile as a traditionalist, but absolutely not a conservative. You know, mm-hmm. um, and that's an important distinction. I think that she is engaged in this really vital process of interrogating the tradition um, and and forming a kind of, of critical dialogue with the lineage and the history of the music and the musicians and the culture. Um, and that's that's just so exciting, you know, it's mm-hmm. um, because it's not settled. Um, that's one thing that she really shows us, you know, that that the history is um, you know, it's not only that the art form is alive, but the history is alive. Um, you know, I, I think I think that's a, a really fascinating and provocative process. And you know, and then all of that, I, I say all of that, and we haven't even mentioned that she's also just an incredible uh, voice and presence and musician. You know, so like, there's all this stuff happening intellectually, but but just on a very basic level, she's also just an incredible singer and an incredible artist. I love how she sings these sort of songs that are kind of purposely squeamish from the tradition. You know, she'll she'll choose something that seems maybe a little a little antiquated or a little sexist or something to kind of point up that aspect of of these standards. Oh, sure, yeah. She's she is not interested in 
passive engagement with the music. She do, mm-hmm. she doesn't want you to sit back and uh, get comfortable. <laughs> she's she's interested in discomfort. She's interested in the the productivity of you know yeah of that squeamishness, right? Mm-hmm. Um, th- there, there's some there's some gold in those hills. Uh, and, and that's that, you know, I really love her for that. Uh, it's, it's, it's never boring. Yeah. I'd love to talk more about this sense that you mentioned of kind of contemporary jazz rewriting jazz history in a way, who are some of the jazz artists of the past who are kind of being rediscovered and reevaluated through the lens of contemporary jazz? Well, one, um, really notable example I would say is Alice Coltrane, Mm -hmm. um, who has always been a, f- a figure revered by a certain uh, subset of, of people, um, including many outside of what we would think of as a jazz audience. Um, you know, Alice Coltrane's music of the 1960s and 70s, especially, you know, it, it has always meant something. But um, within the jazz establishment or within the jazz um, discourse, you know, she's always been something of an outlier and certainly subordinate to the, you know, the titanic achievements of her husband, John Coltrane. Now I'm talking about the discourse. Um, It's been really, uh, really cool and interesting to see that narrative shift a bit over the last, I'd say, decade um, and really come to a more holistic understanding of the Coltranes as, as as a couple in um, in dialogue with each other and supporting one another and really after a lot of the same um, goals musically and spiritually. And uh, you are almost as likely now to, you know, when you, when you talk to younger musicians, you're, you're almost as likely to encounter reverence for Alice Coltrane as you are reverence for John Coltrane. And I, I don't think that that is um, some kind of corrective um, but it is like a really important adjustment, and I think it. I think it is giving her the the recognition that that she is due. And it's also like here's here's where I'm really fascinated. It also actually shifts our understanding of John Coltrane and, mm-hmm. and his work to to place it in active dialogue with the work of Alice. You know, it's it's a really important thing to to think about, and so much of what we are seeing in jazz studies and in um, contemporary jazz criticism involves a kind of um, realignment of of the context, you know, um, putting putting things into the right perspective uh, in terms of the social cultural element, in terms of the historical element. Um, you know, jazz criticism was um, in in mid century was really heavily influenced by the sort of edicts of the new criticism, which, you know, for, for all the, the literary theory buffs out there, you know, we're, we're talking about the, the primacy of the text and the sort of, um, you know, the idea that author, authorial intention is really like not what we're interested in. Mm-hmm. Um, and I feel like we're seeing a, um, we're finally seeing sort of the, the end of that arc, you know, um, it's not that we can't, close read a text. It's not that we can't listen to a piece of music and evaluate it strictly on its formal uh, properties, but I think we are understanding 
just how rich uh, the conversation can be when we factor in all of the forces that that go into you know the creation of this art. Because part of what that old kind of new critical influence framework does is doesn't really allow for us to look at you know, for example, the political implications of a lot of this music. I mean, a lot of the the best jazz of the 70s was written very explicitly in the context of the Black Arts Movement. Right. And and this is, you know, this is a an issue we are as a, you know, as a jazz community, we have we have been reckoning with, you know. Um it was it was in the early 60s that Amiri Baraka wrote his uh you know his landmark essay, Jazz and the White Critic. Um, you know, which which really just comes right out and says it. You know, most important jazz artists have been have been black, and most jazz critics have been white. And there is a there is an issue there. You know, um, I think that um, to be actively observing the scene today and and to write with any kind of insight about someone like Kamasi Washington. Uh, or Thundercat, or Robert Glasper, or Esperanza Spalding, you know, you really need to think about that that cultural context. And I'm not saying that you have to be a product of an African American community, but you certainly need to be in dialogue with one. You, you know, you certainly need to understand um, that there's a social nexus here, and um, and a set of signifiers, and um, you know, this stuff is not happening in a vacuum. Um, and I think, you know, I, I don't want to throw uh, a, like the entire history of jazz criticism under the bus here. Um, but, I, you know, I'm just noting that um, this is a, a set of priorities that I did not feel I inherited when I began doing this work. You know, it's, it's something that I feel like I've, I've, um, I've had to construct a little bit you know, over the course of doing this job. Um, and, uh, and it's a learning process, you know, it's, it's really exciting because I feel like, um, that process is never unfinished. You mentioned, mentioned Kamasi Washington, and I think he's one of the most interesting figures in contemporary jazz because, I mean, he kind of came into public notice with this album, The Epic, which is a triple album, almost all of instrumental music. I mean, there's, there's some songs with vocals, but it's not, uh, uh, an album you would expect to be a big crossover hit, and yet it was. What do you think accounts for for that? Well, I think uh, first and foremost, there was um, just the undeniable magnetism of his presence, you know. Um, and uh, you know, I don't know that it had to happen at that moment. I feel like if the epic had been released, you know, a few years earlier or a few years later, we, we would have seen a similar thing. But um, yeah, you know, Kamasi. Just if you have the experience of seeing him, especially, um, it's undeniable. You know, and, th- and this is why I chose to begin chapter one of the book with a, a basically a description of the impression that he made on stage during that year when he seemed to be everywhere. Um, you know, like a, a, I have rarely seen um, an arrival unfold like that. Um, mm-hmm. And it was really, truly a, a, a remarkable thing. Um, and so, so I wanted to chronicle that. Um, and, uh, you know, what really interested me 
and and this is this was the the most the, the this was the trickiest puzzle for me to put together in the book really was connecting that rise that emergence to the idea of of jazz uh, uh, you know the jazz messiah right or the jazz savior um, which is this enduring trope over the years and and so what does it mean why why is there even this need for such a figure and and what is it that Kamasi was supposed to do to fulfill that role so these were all um, a part of the equation as I as I tried to sort of lay the groundwork for that opening chapter I think part of what Kamasi Washington's uh, appeal maybe has to do with is his association with Kendrick Lamar. Uh, he was one of the many jazz artists who've worked with Kendrick Lamar on, on various albums. And I guess that opens up the question of what do you see being the relationship between contemporary jazz and contemporary hip hop? Well, there's, there's a very close relationship and um, you know, you have to, you have to note from the outset that um the relationship goes to the root of both musics, you know, um, it's not a matter of crossing over. It's a matter of, um, you know, a, a, a tangled root system that, that feeds both, uh, musical forms. Um, you know, to put it plainly, th- this is black music. Um, and so when we talk about jazz and hip hop, um, you know, there are lots of artificial, um, this meets that, kinds of experiments but the most exciting i think always come back to that idea that you know um the one was built out of the other you know and if you look at the kinds of breaks that um that form the backbone of early hip-hop you know yeah there's a lot of james brown but there's a lot of jazz in there you know i mean really the the building blocks of the sound of hip-hop were jazz informed from the very beginning, um, you know, and the process, you know, that, that sonic process, um, you know, not in the most obvious ways, but there is an, there's an ingenuity and a kind of, um, uh, alert resourcefulness to the unexpected, you know, um, all of that feels very, uh, attuned to a jazz impulse to me. Um, so, I mean, that's how I would begin to answer that question. You know, it's it's obviously taken many different shapes and forms uh, along the way. Yeah, I was surprised how much space you devoted to Jay Dilla, who's not usually thought of as being a jazz musician, but obviously his influence is very, uh, very broad in contemporary hip hop and contemporary jazz. Yeah, when I set out to map this book, one of the first questions I asked myself was, okay, well, who are the most influential figures to emerge, you know, since the turn of the century. And Jay Dilla was, was one of the people I very quickly named. And um, what I really wanted to do in bringing him into this was not just um, talk about the vogue of people kind of invoking him, um, but really uh, place him into that continuum, you know, as a, as an avatar of, of like the evolution of jazz rhythm um, and texture and ensemble dynamics, you know? Um, and thankfully and helpfully, I, I had a, a great sort of um, conduit to that whole line of argument in Robert Glasper, who mm-hmm. worked directly with Dilla and who, 
who speaks, you know, with with very keen insight on the ways in which Dilla really functioned as a jazz musician. Um, you know, but but I was already seeing evidence everywhere that the the innovations that Dilla introduced, um, especially with respect to groove and just the way that 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 beat feels, um, the way that the that the, the rhythm just kind of um, feels feels good, but a little disjointed. You know, mm-hmm. um, I was already seeing so much evidence of that becoming an essential part of the of the toolkit for for jazz musicians you know um it's like people talk about tony williams's ride cymbal and elvin jones's polyrhythms you know there's all these things that are signatures well if you are a you know a, a first tier jazz drummer today you know all of that and you also know the the realm of jay dilla you know it's it's just it's a part of the language um, so that that was that was a, a big part of what I wanted to address. One other intersection between jazz and hip hop that you talk about in the book that I found really interesting is how a lot of contemporary jazz albums are basically made as a remix from the start, where people will record, you know, sixty hours of live shows and then cut it up into an hour long uh, uh, album. I mean, that that's very similar to the ways that uh, a hip hop artist would would sample, you know, a huge crate of records to make one song. And that's a very recent development, you know, and, and I was I was happy that I was able to to get that into the book because it was it was really like happening as I was writing. You know, it's become mm-hmm. um, it's become kind of its own uh, subgenre in a way. But but, you know, we have people like uh, Jeff Parker, the guitarist and Micaiah McRaven, the drummer. Uh, we have them to thank for that. Um, they're not the only ones, but they're they're two of the of the most vivid examples of that. Um, I think when I was writing about Jeff Parker's album, the new breed, um, I, I wrote about that process and I used the phrase, uh, I think I said it was like a, like a farm to table instrumental hip hop album. Um, <laughs> and by that, I meant he was growing the, he was growing the, the grooves that provided the samples for the sort of imagined hip hop tracks that he was then reconstructing with a live band. <laughs> so, mm-hmm. so yeah, there's all these layers on it. Um, and it's, it's very cool. You know, it's, it's another example of um, just the creativity that, that happens both through the, through the use of technology um, and just the, the, the complete metabolism of a language. Didn't Miles Davis do something a bit similar in the late 60s and early 70s where he would kind of record a bunch of material and then cut it up for an album? Well, Miles was was not a producer, but he had a, a, a genius producer in Teo, Teo Macero um, who who did. Um, I mean, you have to imagine that that back then, you know, this was tape splicing with, you know, with quarter inch and razor blades. Um but yeah, everything from In a Silent Way to Bitches Brew, um, you know, these were albums that were quite literally constructed out of, you know, hours and hours of kind of hazy, formless jams. Um, and then subsequently, you know, with the, with the example of Bitches Brew, at least, Miles then took that on the road. And so, so you're right in identifying a similar process because, you know, when Miles uh, 
when Miles goes to the Fillmore East and the Fillmore West in 1970, 1971, um, he's got a live band that is playing the music from Bitches Brew. But when those musicians were, were creating Bitches Brew, they had a much less clear sense of what was happening. You know, mm-hmm. um, they couldn't see it because they were in it. But once the album was was created and there was this kind of um, finished product, then they could say, oh, well, this is how this song goes, you know. Right. So. So, yeah, that, that translation process has been a part of the picture uh, for quite a while. Another genre that contemporary jazz brushes up against is indie rock. And you devote a chapter to Brad Meldau um, and you compare him to David Foster Wallace, which I thought was oh, an interesting right. comparison. Could you explain uh, kind of that comparison? Sure. Um, you know, I, I it was really a quote that got me there. Um, and I, I can't I don't want to I don't want to misquote David Foster mm-hmm. Wallace, so I, I won't restate it here. But there's a quote in that chapter where he talks about, and it's it's from a, a, a pretty famous essay of his um, about television, um, and and what he talk what he's talking about is the idea that you know th- like the old revolutionaries were sort of the the sardonic nihilists, you know, and and maybe the maybe the new revolution is actually a sort of embrace of sincerity and feeling and openness. Um, you know, it's a very kind of um, 90s, uh, like pushing against the grain sort of argument. You know, it's sort of like uh, an argument against irony. Um, and I found that really useful because Brad Meldau, who, you know, self-identifies as, you know, a member of the Gen X cohort, um, a lot of what he was doing really, really was a similar thing. You know, he was he, he had internalized all of these ideas um, that were really congruent with, you know, what was happening in, uh, in grunge music and, and in the, you know, the writing of people like Foster Wallace. Um, but he was also, you know, a, a jazz pianist and, and composer who was really unabashedly attracted to um, lyricism and beauty and, you know, and Brahms and, you know, um, and so he was wrestling with this idea of, well, you know, I want to make it new, but I want to honor the old, but has everything already been done before? But I don't want to be, um, I don't want to create a pastiche, you know? So mm-hmm. th- there were a lot of struggles that had to do with his relationship to the past. And this is why, um, the Brad Meldau profile chapter arrives so early in the narrative of this book, because I see him as a transitional figure from this kind of late 20th century valorization of the past and an early 21st century focus on the future. You know, Mm -hmm. Um, I think he straddles those, um, those two preoccupations in a really fascinating way. And he's not the only person, Um, you know, he belongs to this peer group. But he, for me, was a really, um, he was a useful character, uh, you know, with which to explore those ideas. I hate to ask a third question in a similar format, but yet a third genre that contemporary jazz deals with is contemporary classical music. Mm -hmm. Uh, And there you write quite a bit about John Zorn, who, you know, also takes from klezmer and, and metal and punk and, you know, so many other different influences. Um, what do you see being the kind of larger relationship between 
uh, jazz and, you know, what we might call new music? Well, it's changed quite a bit, uh, even just in the last 20 years. And, and, um, yeah, I think you're right that a, a, a big subtext of what we're discussing in this book is the idea that jazz is not cordoned off in some, you know, uh, some like, um, I don't know, uh, a, a small set of dark rooms downtown. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. You know, it's, it's really, um, in dialogue with so much, right. It's in dialogue with all these other forms and not just musical forms, but to answer your question specifically, um, we've seen some really, really exciting developments along, um, this overlap between jazz and, and, you know, I guess what you'd call new music. And some of it we touch on in um, probably most directly in the chapter that is anchored by pianist and composer Vijay Iyer. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and for that, I, I went to the Ojai Music Festival, which is a you know contemporary classical music festival in California. And it, it has a different artistic director every year. And the year that I went, it, went, it, it was uh, Vijay who had the reins. And it was the first time that an improviser was in that position. Um, and it was really interesting because, you know, Vijay uh, is in dialogue with the classical world, like in a real way. Um, one of the pieces he presented there was a, a violin concerto for Jennifer Coe. Um, he had also written pieces for the Brentano string quartet. Um, but, you know, one of Vijay's um, close collaborators is a drummer and composer named Taishan Sori. And to see Taishan navigating that space at Ojai was really like seeing something click into place because um, he's a perfect example of the kind of musician who I cannot imagine existing or, or thriving, I guess I should say, um, at a different point in history. Um, you know, Taishan is a, is a genius improviser who um, is the most serious kind of classical composer and just um, able to, um, he's just able to operate in both spaces with absolute integrity and um, total authority. And he's doing something new that feels challenging and um, sort of endlessly fascinating. Um, And he's doing it in a way that does not uh, surrender to the sort of preconceptions of, of any musical style, you know? Um, But he's just one, one sort of, you know, rare, exceptional example. I think that if you look at what's happening both in jazz and in classical music, you know, it wasn't that long ago that, um, that improvising protocols um, both for individual soloists and for ensembles, you know, they were fairly exotic, uh, in the classical music realm, you know, and they're really not anymore. I, I feel like um, to be a, an ambitious young classical, you know, classically trained musician, um, you should have familiarity with improvisation. And, you know, that doesn't necessarily have to mean idiomatic jazz improvisation, but, but you should be familiar with the idea of improvising on your instrument. Um, sometimes according to, you know, prescriptions or guidelines, and sometimes in a very open sort of way. And, um, and that's, that's a fairly new development. And it's, you know, a direct result of the engagement of musicians like Vijay and Taishan 
um, you know, and, and various others. I've seen Taishan Sori with a couple of, I've seen him with John Zorn. I've seen him with Vijay Iyer. I've seen him with Ambrose Akin Musuri. And every time I see him, he's the only thing I can look at on stage. I just, yeah, I'm right. like, yeah, I, I believe I have the ticket stub. I know I saw Vijay Iyer, but I did not look at Vijay Iyer during that 90 minute <laughs> concert. Well, no shade to is, Vijay Iyer at all. No, no, I, I don't think Vijay would, would disagree with you. I mean, Taishan is just one of those, one of those figures, you know, and this is a good example actually of, you know, um, the kind of um, snapshot in time element of a book. Um, Taishan appears, you know, quite a bit in in that Vijay Iyer chapter. Um, if I were writing this book, you know, five years from now, I, I have very little doubt that Taishan would uh, merit a chapter of his own. Mm-hmm. Um, but at the time that I was writing this book, um, I thought about it and I said, you know what, like if I write a chapter about Taishan now at this phase in his career, it will feel uh, so out of date um, so quickly, <laughs> you know? And so I'd rather, sure. I'd rather actually give him a little bit more breathing room um, and, you know, possibly revisit him. And, and there are a handful of other musicians I felt that way about, um, which is, which again points to just the sheer superabundance of this moment. You know, there are so many interesting thing, things happening along so many different uh, frequencies. Um, that's that's just the best news possible. Mm-hmm. Another one of the kind of big stories that runs throughout your book is the story of how jazz has become institutionalized over the past 40 years, mm-hmm. both in the academy and at places like jazz at Lincoln Center, which would have been unthinkable in the 60s. Um what are some what are some ways that this process has affected the evolution of the genre? That's a complicated question because um, because it touches so many different facets of you know the ecology of the art form. Um, on the one hand, um, you know it's it's really important that jazz has the support of an institution like Lincoln Center. Um, the the fact that it has a permanent home, uh, you know, that Jazz and Lincoln Center is its own institution with its own resources, um, that's it's really it's it's really an important thing. And I think um, there are people who who take issue with Jazz and Lincoln Center for one reason or another, but the fact that this thing exists um, and that it's doing the work that it does is really remarkable. Um, and you know, other organizations like SF Jazz. Um, and Jazz St. Louis and the Earshot, uh, Earshot Jazz in Seattle, um, you know, they're all they're all doing the work, um, and some of it is about preserving um, performance opportunities, and some of it is about jazz education or jazz appreciation. You know, so that's all really really important, um, especially for a music that has often. And, you know, the, the coronavirus pandemic really exposed this. Um, not that it was a surprise, but, you know, jazz has often just been this hand-to-mouth kind of um, economic system. You know, it, it, there, there's really not a whole lot of a support network. And so that points to the, really the need for institutions that that are able to, you know, to weather um, a harsh climate like this one. Now, you mentioned institutions. Uh, I can't disentangle that from um, the rise and the sort of um, uh, 
dominance of institutionalized jazz education, which, um, you know, I devote a, a full chapter in the book to that. And to me, um, this is a, a maybe a provocative thing to say, but I feel like no single force has been more influential um, in ways both good and bad um, on the state of the art over the last 40 years or so. Mm-hmm. Um, I think I think the rise of, of jazz education, um, it's just been transformative. Um, and again, I, I said there are there are pros and cons there, um, but I think that the influence is undeniable. It sort of reminds me of that uh, Duke Ellington interview clip where he says, my conservatory was the Savoy Ballroom. Right. (laughs) You know, if someone like Duke Ellington were born today, his conservatory would be a conservatory, which obviously has its its, uh, pluses and minuses. Well, you know, so much of that has to do with just the way that culture has changed. You know, I've been thinking about this a bit um, during the pandemic as as we look at this, you know, completely um, broken infrastructure uh, and, and just thinking, well, how are we going to rebuild this thing? And what what can we do to ensure that it's actually better, you know, that it's actually more equitable and and more um, humane and, you know, all of these things. And one thought I had was, you know, we did not design it this way, but uh, for most, you know, high-level jazz musicians, um, pre-pandemic, you know, a, a really big portion of, of their um, energy and time was spent traveling, you know, to Europe or to um, Japan or, or China or, you know, wherever um, to earn a living on the road. Um, and there's really not that kind of um, robust network uh, in North America as there used to be. You know, if you look at the date book for the Duke Ellington Orchestra, it's really fascinating, you know. Um, I once took a look at uh, a stretch in the mid fifties, you know, when they were playing the Newport jazz festival every year and they would play, you know, uh, they'd play a concert in a, in a ballroom in, you know, in Michigan's upper peninsula. And then the next day they would play at a department store opening, uh, you know, in (laughs) Stew city. And then the next day they would be, you know, at at an outdoor festival. And the next day they would be in the, in the recording studio somewhere. And it's really just like, it's kind of amazing because, you realize like this is a band that was just working almost every day. They were just constantly on the road. And um, there was a, uh, I mean, I don't think it was easy for them, but there was, there was a sustainable network at that time, you know, and any, any, anyone who's tried to put together a, um, a cross country tour for a contemporary jazz artist knows, I mean, it's, it's pretty rough. Um, You know, there are these, there are these, hotspots, but there's a, there's a lot of dead zone in this country. And I think, you know, what would it mean to really invest in, in something that felt more like a, like a real network, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, I, I think that would really be transformative, but you know, we're, we're, we're dreaming big here, right? Sure. Yeah. You get that same sense reading Ralph Ellison's essays. You know, he's growing up in Oklahoma and yet he sees everybody at that time. And he does, you know, he sees the local guys, but he also sees, you know, all of the important jazz musicians of the time coming to tour in Oklahoma. Right. Right. I mean, Um, yeah. Yeah. People passing through town, you know, that's, that's a thing that used to happen a lot more often. Yeah. 
you do focus most of your book on the U.S., but you also have a chapter where you look at a lot of international jazz, including the scenes in London, in China, and uh, across Latin America. How do you see jazz adapting in these different contexts? Well, you know, if you talk about jazz as a uh, as a kind of language or or a set of proficiencies or you know a process. Um, then it really can thrive anywhere. You know, it doesn't have anything to do with its place of origin. Um, and I think that we've seen that, that there are regional variations and different inflections, you know, based on, on where the music takes root. Um, you know, I, I have received, I think probably the most, uh, the most frequent critique that I've seen relating to this book. And it's one that I, that I, always uh you know will accept with humility is that there's there's not a lot of focus on for instance the european scene you know um there's a lot of a lot of people who've read this book who are based in that scene who say well there's you know this is really this is really a a u.s focused narrative um and that's true and the reason for that is because i i really felt like um i had witnessed enough firsthand um, that that this book for me was really a kind of um, first and foremost it was bearing witness. Um, it was trying to to bring some sense and some clarity to what I had you know really seen unfolding you know primarily in New York City um, you know over the last 20, 25 years. Um, and I, I sincerely hope that we will see you know a kind of European answer to playing changes you know I think, Eventually, we'll begin to see a, a similar book that focuses just on the Chinese jazz scene. In fact, there's there's a little bit of energy around around precisely that story right now. Mm-hmm. Um, but you know, I, I'm getting away from the heart of your question, which I think has to do with um, the sort of polyglot nature of the art form. Um, and I think um, this is increasingly uh, this is an international proposition you know um jazz has always been informed by musics that come from you know beyond american shores um obviously um the music that comes from the african continent to the u.s by way of the the caribbean you know places like cuba um that's that's you know square one you know that's where it begins so it's always been informed by all of these other um, sources and I think you know what's really cool is to see um, successive generations of musicians who take the time to master the the art form, sort of like on its own merits, um, and also really seriously deal with the the cultural um, underpinnings that that they call their own. And so I you know. I think a great example of this is um, is alto saxophonist Miguel Zanon, who's from Puerto Rico, which of course is is still American, but it is culturally you know a, a different um, set of signifiers. And Miguel, um, you know, for him, as I write in the book, there was a, a, a kind of translation process where he he was so determined to be a serious jazz musician that he kind of put his own heritage on hold while he was you know striving to master that language but subsequently he then he realized then that that he was not in full dialogue you know with with 
all of his influences and he began to reincorporate them. And that's when the really interesting stuff happened, you know? Um, and so we're now seeing a really interesting um, flourishing of um, a kind of um, Afro-Caribbean black British diaspora music, you know, in the, in the form of Nubaya Garcia um, and Moses Boyd and Shabaka Hutchings, you know, these are all young uh, black British artists who in many cases have familial ties, you know, to the Caribbean. And they're speaking from this kind of cosmopolitan London um, experience. You know, it's similar to, to what Steve McQueen chronicles in, in his series, Small Acts. You know, there's just mm-hmm. all this vitality on that scene. Um, and it's really exciting because um, it's not just the ancestral, the, the sort of, you know, motherland expression that we're seeing there, but it's also the kind of, you know, specific character of the, of the London, um, you know, the, the, the heterogeneous London thing, um, which is its own thing, you know? And so it's yeah. exciting to see that expressed in the music. Do you see, I mean, do you worry about the scenes in places that don't have that kind of connection to the African diaspora? I mean, you write about the scene in China. There are obviously you know, some African people and African descended people in China, but not nearly as many as there are in London. Do you, do you think that a scene in a place that doesn't have that kind of direct connection to black culture can be as vibrant as, as a London or a New York? Uh, I think it can definitely be vibrant. I, I don't know if I'd want to um, get into a, a, a sort of this or that comparison, but I will tell you that um, I was quite honestly surprised by the level of, um, acuity and, um, and, and really kind of, um, fluency in, in the modern jazz language that I encountered in Beijing. Um, and, you know, this is fascinating because a big part of that was, uh, due to, you know, technology, you know, it was due to the fact that musicians, you know, with, with their, with their time difference, you know, musicians were able to wake up in the morning and over their breakfast table, tune into the live stream from Smalls, you know, and this is years ago before live streams were, you know, the, the norm. Um, but just, just having that access, you know, to, to just be a fly on the wall um, in, you know, just whatever's happening, whatever is, at, you know, happening at ground level in New York City was, was being, you know, digested through a feed uh, across the world. And simply because of that, I mean, it's, you really cannot, overstate what a transformative thing that is for someone who is otherwise so disconnected from our scene, you know, and, and it's, and it's not easy to get materials, but the internet really has changed that, that whole proposition. And so the jazz scene in China, which for, I mean, this was really fascinating to me. And this is why I spend as much time on this scene in the book as I do, because I felt like, the story of jazz in Europe is, it's a really long one and it, and it, it really deserves its own sustained narrative. But the story of jazz in China is, is young and recent enough and still enough of an unfolding story that I felt like I had the rare opportunity to check something out that is still very much on the upswing and, and, um, and kind of chronicle the beginnings of the thing. Um, it's, it was really exciting. And I, I do hope that someday I, I have the opportunity to go back and, and just kind of see uh, what has happened since. China obviously has its own 
you know, very long and, and beautiful musical tradition, also often involving improvisation. Has has that influence started to influence the type of jazz that's made there? Is that a development that's happened yet? Among some people, I would say yes. But most of what I encountered, certainly in Beijing, was um, very much a... Um, I mean, you, you could have felt if you went to the East Shore Cafe, um, you would feel like you had just tripped down the stairs into Smalls. You know, it was mm-hmm. it was like a very close approximation of of what is happening right now in the New York scene. Um, and so there is, you know, often we see um, a multi-phase uh, process where you know step one is like. Um, really persuasive assimilation of um, of a language. And I think that's where they're at right now. Um, you know, I'm speaking in generalities, but sure. um, but this is what I what I encountered, you know, it was just like, it was still just within the last, you know, easily within the last decade that we that we see a widespread, um, you know, level of, of facility among younger players in, in China, where they where they you know, you could sort of um, parachute them into the scene in New York, and they and they would be fine. You know, they they could they could just drop right in. Mm-hmm. Um, that's so new, um, and so I do think and I expect that we are going to begin to see more um, more expressions of you know traditional Chinese instruments, traditional Chinese song forms in in the um, you know the the mainstream jazz expression. Um, but you know, as far as what I witnessed, it, it hasn't quite happened yet. Mm-hmm. Finally, um, at the end of your book, you have a list of the most important, or your your favorite, maybe, or uh, or or your, in your opinion, one of the most important uh, jazz albums of the century. But since the book was published a couple of years ago, it only goes up to twenty eighteen, at least in my edition. Um, if you were to release a new edition, what are some albums you would include for twenty nineteen, twenty twenty, and maybe even twenty twenty one? Great question. Um, I will refer you to um, to a handful of of albums that that really topped my um, my year end best lists in the last several years. Um, in twenty twenty, um, you know, two that I will very quickly um, steer you toward are um, Ambrose Akinmusiri's album. Um, which is called um, the tender spot on every calloused moment. Um, just a, a really beautiful and remarkable document of his quartet. Um, I also love an album he released a couple years ago called Origami Harvest, which is very different. Um, this one incorporates um, a string quartet and uh, electronics and spoken word um, by Cool AD, who some people know as a former member of of the hip hop duo Das Racist. Um, so, so Ambrose, those two albums, um, in 2020, the Maria Schneider orchestra, uh, released an album called data Lords, a double album, um, that really, I think stands as one of the most impressive, uh, large ensemble, uh, statements in, in a very long time. I mean, there is, there is no band, um, executing at the level that the Maria Schneider orchestra does. Um, they're, they're just, they're unbelievable. And her, the, the attunement that she has with that band as a composer and orchestrator is, is just, um, it's astonishing. 
and so so that's one I would definitely steer you toward. Um, and let's see, it's funny, you know, when you're just constantly writing about uh, this music, you sort of lose your um, you lose your grip on time, um, and you forget like, well, when did that come out? Um, <laughs> I will say that uh, in 2019, let's see, thinking now, um, uh, one of the albums that really um, kind of came came out of left field a bit and and garnered a lot of um, justified critical acclaim uh, is by a pianist named Chris Davis. And she appears just kind of briefly toward the end of my book. Um, but she's another artist like Tyshawn who... I think, you know, if I were starting this now, um, I would be definitely thinking about, about Chris Davis as a, as a focal point. And this album she made is called Diatom Ribbons. Um, it's very much a, you know, it, it, it's not the feel of a band playing in a room. It's very much a, a kind of carefully constructed studio product. Um, <clears throat> but it features Terry Lynn Carrington on drums and Esperanza Spalding on spoken word um, and other musicians like, guitarists Nels Klein and Mark Rebo. Um, and it's just, uh, and I should say too, that there's a turntablist, Val Ginti, um, who is really integral to the sound of this album. Um, it's just fascinating. Um, it's another example of um, the kinds of, you know, creative uh, devices that musicians are bringing to the table. So, so those are three, right? Those are three good ones. Um, there's well, you know, it's certainly there, there a good are, place to start. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. You know, and, and um, also I would say, you know, Cecile has just continued to do great work. And so, you know, sh- she has, she has every, every album that she's put out has, um, has been essential. Well, Nathan N, thanks so much for being on new books in performing arts. I really love the book playing changes so much. And, and I, I thank you for the opportunity to speak with you about it. Thank you so much. It was, it was a real pleasure.